My message today this has been on my heart for a while, and it starts with a verse that I'm pretty sure most of us are familiar with, but I'm going to read it. So if you have a copy of scripture, feel free to grab that out. It'll also be on the screen right over there in just a second, I promise. It'll show up. First Peter 5, verses 6 through 7. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The title of my message today, if you guys are taking notes, which I would recommend, not because I have anything crazy noteworthy to say, but just because taking notes is great. It's a good thing to do. <laughs> the title of my message today is God Has Hands. God Has Hands. If you would like theological proof for that, um, a month ago or so, I texted our music director, Solomon. And those of you who know Solomon, he lives up to his namesake. He is maybe the wisest man I know, <laughs> theologically speaking, uh, of course. And uh, I was like, Solomon, I'm working on this message. Does God have hands? And he was like, yes, he does. And I was like, great, sounds great. So you can thank Solomon for that amazing message title. God has hands. What's interesting about there's actually a lot of interesting, about hand, interesting things about hands. But one thing that's really unique is that they tell a lot about who someone is. Their habits, maybe what they do for work. An example of this, uh, somebody who serves here on the Kalispell team, his name is Garen Hartman. Woo! Yeah, uh-huh. We love Garen. Also his wife, Jane, who is amazing. And uh, Garen is a logger. And not in like a, you know, Instagram cutesy kind of way. Like he, this man like rips trees out of the ground with his bare hands. <laughs> this man is Montana to the core. And if you've ever shaken Garen's hand, you would recognize this guy must do something pretty intense for a living. Because it's like he's got permanent gloves on, you know. He's got calluses, he's got big old knuckles. You know, it's like he just got out of a fight with a bear, and then he just ripped a pine tree out of the ground. And he's like, no, let me out of my cage. This is Garen Hartman. And none of those things have probably happened, but in my mind, they have. So Garen's hands tell a lot about who he is, right? And it's the same as the case with me. Look no further than my hands to learn some interesting things about me. Um, over spring break, my wife and I were in Oregon at Mount Hood. Shout out, Oregon. Woo! Mount Hood's pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. We're up at 8,000 feet. It's like 50 degrees and sunny, and we're skiing, right? And actually, I have a photo of me. Look at how happy I am. Look at me. <laughs> I'm so excited to be skiing. Wow, that's such a bad picture. <laughs> So it's like 50 degrees, it's sunny, so I roll up my sleeves, right? And uh, my wife, who is so wise and so beautiful, and I should really listen to her more, she's like, hey, Colton, do you want some sunscreen? And for those of you who are here in Kalispell, <laughs> as well as those watching this can see the answer to that question that I gave. And uh, actually, yeah, here's a photo uh, just later that day. You know, I've, I've been calling it a blessing. I've been blessed with the greatest tan line mankind has ever seen. And I wore short sleeves today just for you. So, you should feel special. 
So my hands, and in this case, I guess my forearms, to tell you a little bit about me. They tell you that I am often unwilling to listen to the advice of others. And in this passage that we just read, we see that Peter gives this detail about God's hands. And it's short, it's easy to miss, but it's important that we notice it. So let's look at this passage again that we just read, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God's hands are mighty. God is mighty. If you would like proof of that, I would like to address the Old Testament. Lots of mighty things happening in the Old Testament. Might, that word mighty, actually speaks of a strength that's demonstrated through action and manifested in action. So in the Old Testament, we see God parting seas, stopping rivers, toppling kingdoms and raising up kings and scattering armies. And then in the New Testament, we see him healing people. We see him saving people. We see him helping people. Our God is mighty. Who here is excited that they don't serve a shrimpy God? I think that's pretty cool. And it's important that we recognize that our God is mighty. And especially because of the context that Peter was writing this letter to. He was writing this letter, and it was going to get circulated around all these early churches who were being hotly persecuted, and they were suffering under Roman rule in Asia Minor. Because of their faith in Jesus, these guys were deeply, deeply persecuted on a level that, frankly, nobody in this room and probably anybody watching in America or in the first world or in the Western world could even grapple with. We have no idea the pain and the fear and the word that Peter used here, anxiety, that these people must have been feeling. What a breath of fresh air it must have been to be reminded that God is mighty. And what's amazing about that word anxiety that Peter chooses to use is even though we might be tempted to believe that Peter is speaking to the anxiety that says, oh man, I'm worried that somebody's going to come kick down my door and arrest me and maybe kill me because of what I believe. That's actually not what Peter's talking about here. Peter is talking about the kind of anxiety that is labeled in the book of Matthew later on, the anxieties of life. The anxieties of life. In the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 22, Jesus describes through this picture what that means. It says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. That's the anxieties of life. They're often attributed to wealth, riches, status, power, and stuff. Possessions, something that we love. We love our stuff, don't we? So what Peter is kind of showing us here is that he knows that even though these guys, these early church people, are going through a lot, and they have a lot of reasons to be anxious, Peter understands the importance 
of the relationship that they have between the anxieties of life and themselves. The relationship that they have with their earthly possessions. The relationship that they have with their influence and their desire for influence and their hopes and dreams for the future. And what's amazing about that is it is wildly relatable, right? Because I don't know about you, but I worry about all the same stuff all the time, guys, like frequently, like last night before falling asleep, right? And even though I have much more consequential things to consider, like my relationship with God or my ministry to my friends and my community or my relationship with my wife, I get so bogged down thinking about these things that really are just not that important, right? And at the same time, these things are very deeply human, things that we feel at our core. Some of the things that I considered likely uh, just last night, like I said. Does my truck make me look cool? (laughs) These are true thoughts. Am I going to be able to have a nightly rental in my backyard? Because passive income, that'd sure be nice, you know? Am I going to be able to take all my vacation days this year? Because I'd love to go back to Mount Hood. When I'm old... Am I going to be too wrinkly because I don't wear enough sunscreen? (laughs) Like, it's funny, but it's also like, this is the stuff, right? These are the weird things that weigh us down and that we find ourselves wound up in knots about. And the list continues. And that doesn't even mention all the times that I find myself worrying about other people's money and status and power and influence. And that's a whole nother sermon. that we would talk about called gossip and envy, which are both bad things. (laughs) But all this to say, I get so wrapped around the axle about appearances and possessions and just things that have nothing to do with what really matters in my life. And I don't need to take a straw poll to know that I'm not the only one. Because statistics bear this out. Anxiety isn't just on the rise. Oh yeah, anxiety, you know, it's on the rise. It's like, no, anxiety is having a moment right now, a big one, especially post-pandemic. Feelings like loneliness, depression, anxiety, fear, and of course, their unfortunate consequence quite often in the lives of many people, suicide, is having a moment right now, especially in the lives of teens, in the lives of young adults, which is why we go through everything that we're going to go through to have something like movement conference, why we invest so much in Fresh Life students, because we believe that students need to know that they matter, they're loved, they have a calling, there is a reason for them to get out of bed in the morning, and I wonder if we believe it or not, let's clap a little bit, because like students, you matter, you matter so much, you are the future, and we're fighting for you, not perfectly, but we're trying because we know that you matter, and this hits you really hard. But what's beautiful about all of this is that Peter doesn't just leave us high and dry with a problem. He gives us a solution. And like I said earlier, this may be scandalously simple. It may be offensively simple, but I believe that it's still true. So you ready for this? 
Peter's solution to anxiety. 1 Peter 5, 6. We've already read it a couple times. The first two words of this verse. Humble yourselves. (laughs) Humble yourselves. Do you feel like the worry of life, the anxiety of life is choking out your ability to follow hard on the calling that God has put inside of you? Well, Peter says to you, and definitely to me, you need to humble yourself. Humble yourself. Peter's message and my message to you today in one sentence is this. Humility is the antidote to anxiety. Humility is the antidote to anxiety. So I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about how we humble ourselves. How do we do that? And I want to be clear here. I'm not a doctor. I have a friend here today who is a doctor. You know, like, I, I'm not giving medical advice, okay? And if you suffer from chronic or clinical anxiety, and if that's something that's a struggle for you and something that you are working through, there's absolutely no shame in that. Whatever treatments you need to do, there's no shame in that, especially not from me or from anybody in this room, and especially not from God. God loves you no matter what you're walking through, no matter what you're waking up with in the morning, even though it's something that other people might not understand around you, God still loves you anyway. I just need you to know that, okay? But I do happen to believe that this book is weirdly practical sometimes. (laughs) And there's a lot of things in this book that I believe if we are to live according to them, they will help us with our day-to-day experiences with the anxieties of life. So the first Boy, I have three P's, clicked them all today, that we can humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, and in so doing, cast our anxieties upon Jesus. Number one, submit to the permanent. Humility is the antidote to anxiety. We humble ourselves by, number one, submitting to the permanent. What do I mean by permanent? I think that a big part of humbling ourselves under God is submitting to the fact that when he made the world, he baked into it stuff that is not going to change, age, go out of style. It simply is what it is. We call it truth. Truth. That's a loaded word these days. And it's counterintuitive to believe that there is such thing as objective unchanging truth because we can often be led to believe that truth is only subjective. For example, and that's, it's true. It can be subjective. I will give you an example now. Pizza is the greatest gift God has ever given mankind aside from Jesus. Now, braggadocious, crazy claim, but I believe that at the core of who I am. I believe that's true, and a wise majority of you agree. An unwise minority of you, however, take offense to such a claim, and you would say, Colton, how could you possibly know that that's subjective? And I would have to cede you that point. Yes, it is subjective, and no, even though a good slice of pepperoni pizza is maybe the greatest thing on the planet, I can't prove to you that my statement about it being the best thing ever is true. 
right? It's subjective. It's, it's just the way it is. It's different for you. It's different for me. But as Christians, Christians, we believe that there is this other category of truth that is not subjective. It is what we call objective. These truths are fundamental, immutable, unalterable, unchanging, and self-evident about the world that we live within that God made back in Genesis. And we are daily given a choice. The choice is live according to the truth that God put into the world or choose our own, make our own truth. So the question then would be, what happens if we choose God's truth versus if we choose to follow our own? What happens depending on our choice? C.S. Lewis said it very eloquently. You can't go against the grain of the universe and not expect to get splinters. Where's Garen Hartman when you need him, right? <laughs> Luke 14, 11 puts it this way. It says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever, key phrase today, humbles himself will be exalted. So live God's way, and long story short, be blessed. Elevate yourself and your truth over God and watch as even the very fabric of your soul slips through your fingers. And maybe you're hearing all this and you're like, okay, Colton, you've had me until now, but this is exactly the thing that I hate about Christianity. It's so exclusive, it's so dogmatic, and why can't I just have my own truth and as long as I don't hurt anybody's feelings or hurt anybody's body, I can just kind of do my own thing and they can do their own thing. Can't we all just like be fine? Can't I just have my own truth? The short answer is yes. You can. There's no problem in that at all. I mean, I happen to believe there's kind of an eternal problem, but like, you can do that. But let me challenge you on one little thing before you make that choice. Because what if the truth, the permanent, put forth in this book by God is better? What if this is actually better? What if, even though you could choose from all the truths and all of the wise people and all of the wise sayings and all of the ideas out there about what's true and what's not, but at the end of the day, this was still better? You might be like, Colton, okay. Prove it. Let me give you a very short list of some of the things that we believe as Christians are true about this world, and then you tell me, okay? Truth, you are loved. God loves you, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going to do. Figure that one out. God loves you. You are loved, true. True, you aren't a mistake. You're not messed up. God made you exactly the way he wants you to be. Nobody can take that away from you. That's true. That's permanent truth. Your future is certain. God has a good future in mind for you. That's true. We believe that. True. You matter. 
You matter simply because God made you that way. These are the things that we believe are true about this world and about every single person who lives within it. So try to tell me that you can come up with a truth that's better than what God puts forth. God loves you. God cares about you. God has a good future for you. I don't want to live in a world where that's not true. And even though the truth offends us, and even though we'd rather choose our own options and be the arbiters of our own freedom. Jesus says it really well in John 8, 32. You can know the truth, Jesus, and the truth living according to it actually sets you free. What if the key to freedom wasn't options, but the key to freedom is actually submission? Submit to the permanent. And just watch. Watch as your life unfolds in beautiful ways. And you might be like, Colton, what does that have to do with anxiety? What doesn't it have to do with anxiety? Because like, I don't know about you, but I don't know what's going to happen after this. I don't know if I'm going to, you know, be able to buy a house one day. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this or do that. My hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, it's all uncertain. But we have a God who at the very core of the world has things that are unchanging, that will not move, that are fundamental. And even when your world feels like it's spinning out of control, you know that God is in control because he's holding the world in his hands. Let those words fall on your anxious soul and just try to stay worried. You can't do it. You can't do it. Hebrews 6.19, put it this way. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. My goodness, to have an anchor for your soul. Steady and unmoving. Okay, that's the first way. Submit to the permanent. Second, choose the right perspective. Choose the right perspective. So in studying for this message, I decided to investigate the deep theological wells of the cinematic classic, Bruce Almighty. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the premise of this movie is that just like a normal guy, Jim Carrey, um, becomes God, or at least is given the powers of God, who is played by Morgan Freeman. And what Jim Carrey finds out is that even though he has all the power of the world at his fingertips, being God isn't great, right? It's not awesome. And obviously it's a movie, but this movie kind of pokes at an idea that's kind of true. Being God as a human being doesn't really work. We make really bad gods, right? So question then, why so often do we pretend like we are God? Because we act like if we don't have complete control over everything, it's all going to fall apart, right? Sounds a little bit like pretending to be God if you're asking me. We feel this pressure to take everything into our own hands. And the problem with that is we can try, but we don't know how to hold on to the future and hold it all together and still maintain our character. So what do we do? We burn bridges. We fudge numbers. We take shortcuts. We gray out the black and white to get what we want. And at the end of the day, we're actually left with more anxiety trying to hold on to the thing that we cheated to get 
than if we would have just trusted God to give us good things because he's a good father. So that's what happens when we take the perspective of God. It doesn't go well. So what perspective are we supposed to have? Matthew 18, 4 says, whoever, key words again, humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you're not supposed to see yourself like God. You're supposed to see yourself like a kid. A kid. You know, kids are fun. (laughs) All the parents are like, yeah, my kids are way over there. It's fine. It's great. Kids don't know all the things going on in the background just to keep them alive and to keep socks on their feet, right? All kids have to do is just learn and follow and live their lives. I want to be clear here. Pastor Levi says this really well. There's a difference between being childish and childlike. This verse is talking about being childlike. Childish means blaming your immaturity on God. So don't quit your job. Sell off your 401k and stop planning your future. That's dumb, frankly. And it's childish. Childlike is being filled with wonder and gratitude for your God who loves you and who has done so many great things in your life, not the least of which is saving you. It's pretty easy to be a kid when you realize that God ultimately did this thing that we could truly never do on our own, sending Jesus, right? So we're supposed to have the perspective of a child, fully dependent upon our Father in every way. And when we do that, I believe that it frees us from anxiety because now I don't have to hold on because God is holding on and I trust him, right? So that's choosing the right perspective. You're not God and that's a good thing for all of us, but also for you. (laughs) Final way you can humble yourself, this is my final P, walk in your purpose. Walk in your purpose. I believe that if you want to humble yourself, try walking in your purpose. If you want to know what your purpose is, I know what it is. Your purpose is love. To love God and to love people. That's the way that Jesus put it. So do you feel purposeless? Like you don't have a reason to get out of bed in the morning? You do. I just told you. To love. To love God and to love people. Your purpose isn't to make yourself happy. Your purpose isn't to make your family happy. Your purpose isn't to make a lot of money. Your purpose isn't to go on great vacations. And your purpose isn't even to do great humanitarian feats, even though those things are all fine and great. Your purpose is love. You are to strive for a heart-level devotion to God and let that flow out into how you treat the people around you. One word that we could use to kind of sum all that up, serving. Serving. What did Jesus do? He came not to be served, but to serve. Serving. And why does it take humility to serve? Why can humility and serving kind of be mentioned in the same sentence? Because serving, at its core, is like just not about you, man. In fact, it's about literally everyone but you. 
Serving is valuing somebody else's needs and wants and desires over your own. So try to serve. Try to have the heart of a humble servant and still be anxious about your future. Still be anxious about your money. Still be anxious about your housing situation. Try to put yourself in a position of service and still hold on to anxiety because you can't do it. Because now I see a bigger picture. Now I see a reason to get out of bed in the morning and I can't just sit around worrying because I got a job to do. I got people to reach. I got people to touch. I got hope inside of me this world needs to hear. I don't got time for anxiety. Because I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve my guts out. That's what humbling yourself looks like. It looks like being a servant. It said in Matthew 6, Jesus said this, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This verse tells us that we have a choice. You have a choice. Who are you going to follow? And if you choose to serve rather than being served, rather than chasing after all of the things that life wants to throw your way, just watch as all the pressure from the chasing fades into the rearview mirror as you walk in your purpose. You're not holding it all together. God is. All you have to do is love. So, recapping our points. Permanent, perspective, purpose. This is how we humble ourselves. And you might be asking, Colton, okay, you've put forth a great argument here, but how can I know that those things actually work? Great question. I've thought of you. I would compel you to look no further than Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's under such anxiety that he's sweating drops of blood and not the anxiety of life, the anxiety of your life, the anxiety of my life resting on his shoulders. And what does he do? He submits to the permanent plan set forth since the beginning of creation. He knew what he was gonna have to do. What does he do? He chooses to trust his father who has a good plan for him. And what does he do? He chooses to walk in his purpose. This is what Jesus did. So he's arrested. And picture him. This is, this picture has been just tearing me up on the inside because this was my God. He's ascending the hill to Golgotha. He's holding on his shoulder the cross that he would be hung from. He's beaten down. He's bleeding. He's just trying to put one foot in front of the other. He's exhausted. He's tired. He's dehydrated. He's God, you guys. And what does he do at the top of the hill? The Roman guard reaches out and he unfurls his fingers, showing to that Roman guard who he knew by name and who he loved, the hands that made the heavens and the earth the hands that hung the stars in the sky, the hands that dotted the I's and crossed the T's on your life's story, the hands that set time into its progression. These are the hands that those guards nailed to the cross. 
If you hear anything from this message today, I already told you what it is. God has hands. And with those hands, he made the world. And with those hands, he saved the world. Amen. And those hands are reaching out to you right now, today. Those hands tell a lot about who God is, right? They tell a lot about who he is. And Jesus' humility is the antidote to our anxiety. Philippians 2, what does it say? Verses 6 through 11, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let's get verse 8. And being found in human form, he, there's our key phrase again, humbled himself, but becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus's humility is the antidote to our anxiety and not just the anxiety about our wealth or about our status or about our future, but that deep anxiety of what's gonna happen to me when I die? Why am I here? What's the meaning behind all of this? Jesus's humility is the antidote to that anxiety. And it's a free gift of grace for you to receive. Acknowledging the humility that pinned him to the cross. You can do that. You can acknowledge that right now. You can, as it says in scripture, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ did what he said he did and you will be saved. You can have that deep anxiety in your heart met by the goodness of a God who loves you so so much. And if your heart right now is saying, yeah, let's do that. That sounds amazing. That's what I've been looking for all along. Then I want to give you a chance to do that right now, okay? So let's all pray. God, we love you so much. Thank you so much for letting us be here in this moment. And we know right now you're doing what only you can do. It says in scripture that you stand at the door of our hearts and knock. And all it requires is for us to open the door and you will come in. So we pray right now that if anybody is far from you, that they would open the door. We love you so much. Thank you for loving us. Now, in this moment with everybody's head bowed and eyes closed, this is a moment between you and God. I'm gonna have you pray a prayer along with me if you want to say yes to Jesus. And I'm going to have the church pray it along with you just to show you that we got your back. We are so excited about what is happening in your soul right now. Okay? So we're going to pray this with you. Let's pray together. Say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I need your grace. Come into my life. Make me new. From this day forward, I'm all yours.